I think what I look at is when you pay, when you put money down, which is just the resource that we're all connected to, it just, it makes you serious to me. So therefore I want to be serious with you. There's so many times, especially when I was high in philanthropy time, as we talked about earlier, there's so many times I would get on a call with somebody and really the reason they wanted to talk to me about, wow, you quit your job making three, 400 grand a year is they want to find my advantage so that they could stay, so that they could then say, oh, I don't have that advantage. Therefore I can stop trying. That happened so much. It still happens, right? It's like, so welcome to the freedom chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today I'm fired up because I get to interview Jamie Gruber, one of my best friends and just an amazing dude. But just so you know a little bit about what this man does, this man gets to interview some of the smartest, most successful people on the planet. And he gets to run all these amazing masterminds all over the world. He's actually living in the Dominican Republic because he's living his best life, which we're going to talk about today and so much more. I mean, this guy's a stand-up comic, a radio broadcaster. Like I have fear sometimes just hopping on this side of the podcast. This man seems to have no fear, but we're going to dive into that today to find out if he actually does have some fears. This guy is left his W-2 job and has left it far, far behind in the dust. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Let's get into it. Like, man, I want to start at the stand-up comic part because to me, that's where like my anxiety and my fear would be at its absolute highest. Was it pure excitement for you doing that or like how much fear was going on? Tons. My first time I did stand-up, uh, I was 32 years old. I'm 44, so 12 years ago. And, and you said Emma stand-up. It was. I haven't done it in a long time. But the club I went to was called the Comedy Vault in Boston. It was literally an old bank vault. Like when I went to the, to the club, we sat as the comics in a vault, like in this giant vault and the stage was outside of it. You had to bring two guys, but I had prepared my, my five minutes. That's what you get. Five minutes. You got to bring two guys to the show for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, you know, I'm kind of muttering to myself in the mirror. This is before kids and all that stuff. So I'm just sort of like stammering around my apartment in Boston, thinking of things that I think are funny. And so the day comes and, and I think the show started at 8 PM. I woke up that day, like excited and nervous, couldn't eat, couldn't drink, couldn't do anything. Just all I had in my mind was running through this set, running through this set. And I don't know, about an hour before, two hours before eight o'clock, I met with my friends at a restaurant above this comedy vault. It was in a basement and I couldn't eat. We, we had something to eat there. And I just like, no, I don't want anything. Do you want water? No, I can't drink anything. I was, my stomach was just, was just flipping on me. So eight o'clock rolls around. I go downstairs. I'm on a list. I, I'm not going to go on until like 10 o'clock. So cue the additional anxiety for me. And then literally before I go up, there's this comedian named Joe Wong who pop, pops into the club. And if you're in the comedy space, when a comedian with street cred, any kind, even a little bit comes in on an open mic night, you're whoever's up next gets bumped for this person. Now this guy's cred. He just came off of Ellen DeGeneres for the third time. He's been on Letterman four times. He's done all these different incredible things. And now he's actually since moved back to China and he's like the Chinese Ryan Seacrest. He hosts all of their big stuff. But he pops in and you get five minutes. He bumps me, goes up there, crushes the room. He was just getting ready to film his CMT special, country music television special. So his five were like, he's just tweaking it. Like it's perfect. And he's making it even more perfect. This room is dying. And he looks over at the MC and he goes, hey, should I stop? She goes, nah, keep going. So another five minutes of him crushing this room. And then now it's my turn. Thank 
God. What's happening inside kid. of you as as he's going? What's happening inside of you? More nerves? I'm thinking less nerves. Yeah, I'm like, how am I going to follow this? Like, do I walk away? Like, I could leave. Like, there's a door to get out. I could leave right now. Like, I was so tempted to go, but at the same time, I was so like enamored by what this guy just did. So, I think there was a part of me, a big part of me, is like, oh my god, there's no way I can follow this. But the other part of me was like, I think I could do that. I actually really think I can do what he just did. At, you know, on my own, like this room wants to laugh because before that they didn't laugh at anybody, right? There's 12 guys that went up. They're all open micers. They're all either trying new stuff out or brand new. No one's laughing at anybody. So now, thank God. The only thing that was saving grace, this dude, Woody Wood from the hood, that's his hook, came in. He had been away from the scene for like a year, but he's buddies with the MC. So the MC's like, oh, Woody Wood, you're here. You go up next. And he bombed so bad. So it like created the space for me. And then I went, I went up and did my thing. Uh, but to quickly bring the story to a close, when I went up on stage, I remember the anxiety, the fear, not eating, not drinking, all of that all day. I go up on stage, gone. It was like I was home. I, I, had, mm. I had this sense of clarity and comfort and everything and looking at these faces. I did a little crowd work, got some laughs, some stuff I didn't get laughs on. But I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, I think I know why I didn't. I didn't play that in my mind, how it sounded when I did it on stage. So makes sense why I didn't get a laugh. And I went back and tweaked it and tried again and tried again. But yeah, it was extremely nerve wracking. But then it provided me with this sense of like, oh, wow, this might be something. So that's my story. So as you're going into comedy, like what was it like, you know, what kind of feelings did getting laughs do for you? And was that the same as like when you were radio broadcasting? Were those kind of filling up the same valves for you? To an extent, there's two, two sides to this. Yes. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a sportscaster. So, you know, I didn't, I went, you know, five years later at, at 21 years old, uh, after going all in on being a sportscaster, I became a claims adjuster, right? So I completely gave up that goal. But the reason I want to be a sportscaster is because I enjoy the art of communication. I enjoy seeing something and explaining it. I love influence, right? Like to, to inspire and, and show people something through my gift of being able to interpret and communicate it. That's what I loved. Sportscasting seemed like the way to do it. So later on, you know, 12, 13 years later, comedy was was another outlet for me. And I've always just been a fan of it. We've talked about that, right? Like, I just love the art of stand-up. So jumping up on a stage, just I've always wanted to do it. But along the way, you know, I had a day job. You talked about me leaving my W-2 that I accelerated in very quickly. I was really good at it. I was a claims adjuster, became a claims supervisor, became a claims manager. And then later on, after this comedy thing, became a, an executive with this insurance company, made a lot of money. Um, and I was very effective in the job. But somewhere in my 20s, along the way, actually, probably from the very beginning, I always had this inkling or this sense that ah, I'm meant for something different. And I've, I've, I've sort of always I had the idea that I'm going to go do that one day, comedy one day. A big intervening event for me was I was following the script up until about the age of 27, 28, actually probably 30 of my family, which is, Hey, you get out of high school, you go to college, maybe, but you get a job, you meet the girl, you buy a house, you have kids, you do all that by 26. And then you just live out the rest of your life and retire one day. That's the script. I was checking those boxes. So I got a job. I didn't love. I liked, but didn't love. I got in a relationship. I shouldn't have been in. I got engaged to this girl when I shouldn't have, I knew from the time I even proposed, I shouldn't have. Um, and you know, I was out of shape because of it and everything. And at a certain point I actually unraveled the, the relationship. I called the wedding off three weeks before it was supposed to happen. Um, at the same time, I was took a promotion to move to Boston from New York. When I got to Boston, new environment shifted everything. I lost the weight. I felt more confident. I was career focused. And I meet my wife who to me was in a, and she I still is in another stratosphere, like non-attainable. In fact, my mindset was like, wow, I, I was cool being single after my last relationship. Like screw that. But if there's women out there like that, 
oh, if I could even get close to somebody like that. And then I started dating her and then we moved in together and then we got married. So I tell that because yes, comedy at 32 years old was filling or refilling or reigniting a fire I had at 16 to communicate effectively and get out there and broadcast my voice. But by finding and meeting and marrying my wife, who, you know, is way out of my league, was then still is to this day, there was something in me that was like, wow, when I, when I put myself out there, because I mean, just to court her, she reported to me. She was in my organization, right? Like the, the career risk, the social risk, the, all of it, but I did it and it worked. And so me challenging myself and putting me in a position to challenge myself had this incredible reward. So what would comedy be? I thought, you know, probably, oh, I could be a comedian, but the reward was learning that I can overcome anything that my mind is telling me I can overcome. And that's served me so much to this day. So you overcame the, the fear, obviously, for the sake of the benefit in comedy, right? And then now you have this girl who's out of your league, like significantly out of your league, as you put it. How, like, how did you manage the fear, right? I mean, because a lot of guys, when they see a girl that's like a 10 out of 10, you know, or whatever, like they're truly looking for, they get so nervous, they fumble it, they mess it up. What was the process of going after her? There's no, I didn't manage the fear at all. It was uh, insecurity. It was making sure that I heard from her that she loved me all the time because there was like no way that this could be real. It was smothering. It was all of that, man. I made every mistake and I still do to some extent. I do all this stuff, right? Like there's, there's no overcoming the fear, at least for me. I still have fear. To, we were just talking about it. I have fear I'm never gonna make another dollar. I have fear I'm gonna be exposed to some sort of imposter. I have fear that you know I, I won't be able to realize my dreams and I'm getting too old to ever do it. All those fears are still there, but it's more, it's more along the lines of what's the alternative? You know, you gotta keep going. And one of the things, one of the questions I get asked often that I hate, and it's not the person that I hate that asks it, but I just hate the question is what would you tell your 22 year old self or your younger self now? And I'm like, it's impossible. It's an impossibility. It's a silly question because you can't do it. What advice might I give a 21, 22 year old that I know? I'll give them this advice, but I don't know about you. At 21, 22, I knew everything. I wouldn't have taken my own oh, advice wait. even if I yeah. could go back and meet myself, right? And nor would a 22 year old today. It's frustrating for a 40 year old. But when I look forward at 85 or 90 year old me, like I'm really clear on that person. I'm really clear on what he is, who he is, what he's doing, what he would say, what he would want his life to have looked like. I'm really, really clear, as are you, as is everybody. So the way I overcome or push through when I'm feeling fear constantly is just looking at that guy and saying, what would, I, what would you do here? You know, And never, ever, ever, ever has he said to me, just retreat, go back, be comfortable. It's, you know, just live a, live a small life. You know, once you get to meet me, you will be happy that you played small, that you didn't go for it. Never, never, never has he said that. He's always said, go for it, man. What's the worst that truly happens? Really? You get a little judgment. You feel a little bad, all of that stuff. So I, yeah, there's no way to overcome the fear. The only other thing I'll throw at this, I think, is we build things up sometimes. And this was really big when I called the wedding off. Imagine calling a wedding off three weeks before with my ex. But I remember like for months I knew I should. For months, but I wouldn't, ah, it's Christmas, her birthday's coming up. There was always a reason not to. And when I finally said it, like the emotions crescendoed and then it, it calmed down. Um, have you ever heard of the story of the buffalo and the cows? No. So this is what I approach that as. Like when you say the words, right? When you say the words that are hard to say, it, you create a new reality that you're just going to have to deal with. But it's going to be over way sooner when you do it. So when, when a storm is coming, 
cows and buffaloes react very differently. Cows will turn and run from the storm and they'll keep on running. They'll become exhausted, but they'll keep on running from the storm. And at some point the storm catches up to them and all they are now is exhausted and still impacted by the storm. When Buffalo, I heard a Buffalo see a storm coming, they turn and run right for the storm. It's scary. They don't want to do it. It's harder. But when they run right through on the other side, they see blue skies and the pain is over. So I think that's sort of the mantra that I live by for managing the fear. The fear is always there, right? That, you know, like they say, it's uh, a courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is overcoming the fear. And I tend to align with the Buffalo more, especially after the experience I've had in my life than I do the cows, not with everything, but that's what I aspire to. I love this way that you're framing not only that story, but what you were mentioning before, because it's like when you ask somebody like when they're unwilling to take the risk, they're unwilling to get into their true life or their, you know, their best life. A lot of times they say, well, there's all this risk. Someone asked me one time when I was struggling, they were like, hey, if your kids were in the same spot, would you want them to pursue their dreams or would you want them to live a small life? And without hesitation, I was like, well, I want them to pursue their dreams. Right. And it's like, well, why the heck aren't you doing that for yourself? Um, and so, like, I love what you're saying here. So you were not just making $50,000 a year in your corporate job, right? You were making deep, multiple, multiple six figures, right? How Three, much four, yeah. did that play? Yeah. How much did that play for you in the decision? Like how much harder did that make it than if you were scraping by? The decision to leave the job, it was really, there was really no factor in decision. And when I got to the point of deciding to leave the job, the idea that I could one day, like, you know, a few years before when this whole crazy notion that like, wow, wouldn't it be something if I didn't have this job anymore? Yeah, man, that was, that was everything. Like, how am I going to walk away? Wife stay at home, two kids, mortgage, the complexities of life. So all of that stuff, all that stuff played into, do I even pursue this? How do I pursue this? Is it even worth my time? Or do I just figure out a way to enjoy what I'm doing, swallow all the, the pain and the heartache and the, yeah, I guess this is my life, you know, go, go drink on Fridays, numb it out. Or do I take, do I take steps to get there? But at the point at which I quit the job, um, yeah, the, the income had nothing to do with it. There was, there was, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say nothing. I mean, of course there's a slight fear, but not to the magnitude that you're mentioning. I made three, 400 grand a year and I'm going to go to, you know, effectively zero as far as a two week paycheck and wife, kids at home and all that stuff. But no, nah, there was no fear in that. Yeah. Love it. You, your strategy has always blown me away. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by so many things about you as far as like how you go about your business, like the level of fearness, fearlessness you seem to operate with you, your strategy of being so deeply ingrained in the go culture. And then, you know, obtaining the ability to get the opportunity to interview all these amazing people from Evan Carmichael, Ryan Stern, like just the list is, is crazy. How has your interactions with these people impacted you or changed your life? Oh my God. It's everything. It's everything. And it goes back even to my corporate career. So my story in corporate was, you know, I was that guy, hard charging, fast moving, you know, a bit entrepreneurial. So, you know, I was, it would sometimes put me at odds with my bosses who really wanted me to stay within guardrails, right? Big company, big processes, all that stuff. But as I started to pursue the executive role, which I thought was the thing that was going to satisfy this sort of feeling like I'm mismatched, I'm not in the right role. When I started to pursue that, I took any job I needed to, any role I needed to that put me in the room with the other executives or with the executives, the ones that I wanted to be. So that was an early lesson. It's like once I got in that room and then I'm presenting in front of that room and being a, an expert in a certain part of my business in front of that room, 
I was looked at as that room. So as I started to apply for executive jobs, it became inevitable. The, the, the people, the decision makers, they had me in the room already. And it was just a matter of, okay, which one of these fit Jamie best? So getting around other people that are at the level or doing the things that you want to do in the future is absolutely essential. And it was in my corporate career. Going forward, this is interesting. This is a bit nuanced and even some recent stuff here. So going forward, when I joined GoBundance, for instance, it was, it was the action I took to overcome the fear that we've talked about of, well, I make three, 400 grand a year. Yeah, okay, I bought a couple of duplexes, but let me do the math here on these duplexes and how long it's gonna take, <laughs> how many of these I'm gonna need before I make 300 grand a year, you know? And then you learn about like buying a duplex. I mean, unless you did, I don't know, but like, yeah, it takes a bit to cash flow when they're a value add play. Like you got, you got to kind of dump money back into it. Shit pops up you didn't expect. So anyway, so I'm looking at the math on these and it's like, well, all right. So I'm listening to podcasts and you hear people that you admire. Brandon Turner is a guy talking about this thing that he does. Then you hear a guy, I read this book, Wealth Can't Wait. And David Osborne, oh, wait, he's doing the same thing. This guy's worth at the time $100 million. Now he's 250. And you just keep hearing this from different people. Like, this is what they're doing. And that's where I want to be. Well, if they're the people I want to be or like, be like, and they're all over there, well, I should go over there. So I plunk down the money and I join GoBundance. My problem is though, within a month, I had my first accountability pod call and I completely withered down after I, I started talking to my peers in my pod about what they're doing and what I'm doing. Like, I'm like a million and 72 cents, right? Like I, I literally counted the, the change in my couch to become a millionaire and join GoBundance. And these guys are making a million, a quarter, you know, like they're, they're making my net worth four times every year. And I'm just like, I don't belong here. This isn't the right room for me. I, let me, I paid the money. So I guess I'm here. I'll show up for these calls and I'll be a little bit vulnerable and not completely. I'll protect kind of my ego here. And at a certain point, it was like, I don't think I'm in the right room. I think I'm going to withdraw after my first year. My wife really pushed me on this. Like, you're here. Did you engage? I'm like, nah, I really haven't. And from that point forward, I just found, I found that being in the room, if you're in the room, whenever you're in the room that you're in, you deserve to be there. You're there. It's the universe, God, or whatever you believe in delivered you to that room. So you deserve to be in that room. One. And two is the pressure came off when I was wondering all the time, like, what am I gaining from this? How am I gaining from this? What's the, what's the KPI? What's the measure of, of success that I've had in being in this room? And instead, I said, you know what? Let me, just, let me just serve these people. Let me just give to these people. So I, I actually had this discussion with my Emerge group yesterday because we were talking about our accountability pods and how some of them are struggling with like the value of the pod. And the question I always ask is like, are you showing up to get value or to give value? And so I'm like, ah, oh, both or get. Some said give, but I don't truly believe that that's what their intention is. It's just they know that's the right answer. But I said to them like, all right, if you were in a pod with Brandon Turner, what would you do with him? How would you react to him? And they're all like, oh, I would, I would just want to, I'd want to, I'd want to help him. I'd want to be, I want to be in his world and I understand I want to help him. So the realization for me with them was, hey, look, there's a Brandon Turner in that, in your pod right now. There's a Brandon Turner in this community right now. So if you would serve Brandon, if you understand the value of serving Brandon Turner fully baked, where he is, he's done it all, he's at, this, at the pinnacle, and he's an above average GoBundance guy success-wise. He's not at the top. He's, for him, he's at his pinnacle, and he's an above average GoBundance guy. If you would serve that guy, then look at everybody in your pod. There's five of you, 20%, one of you, 20% of you are likely to be the next Brandon or something along those lines. If you're in service to these people, you're gonna get value back from that. So that flip for me of going to a service-based mindset from a, what do I get mindset? It pivoted two things. It pivoted me from a W2 guy to an entrepreneur. I learned that's, that that is an entrepreneurial trait, give. 
and it, and it took the pressure off me to try to derive value. And the value just started coming at me, man. Like I, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, you know, I'm with quantum capital. That's just cause I met Mark who's a family guy writer for 22 years. Cool ass story. He had me at Seth MacFarlane's birthday party for God's sake. I met Mark and just wanted to help him. He's looking for investors. He's looking for different syndicators to network with. I know those people. Let me, let me help you with that. I meet a guy that owns a baseball team, a major league baseball team and help him out. Not because I wanted anything from him, but he eventually invites me to a game in the owner's box. You know, like those things just happen as a result of giving. So I think, I hope I answered your question. I think people need to be more service minded when you're in that room and it takes the pressure off and you'll actually get more value back when you're giving more value up front. Love this because it takes the person's attention off of why you're here and what your credentials are. And it puts it on the why you're here is to provide value. And so now all of a sudden the credentials aren't the focal point, right? It's, it's the service and the connection that you're doing. So I want to get into this a little bit because I want to get to the practicality of it. Sometimes yeah. that's easier said than done. One, because we're fighting our own psychology of wanting to get to the next level. But two, it's also like you can't always just say, hey, how can I help you to a person that's way above you? Because the most of the time they won't know, right? They'll be like, right. I don't know, man, they'll just pay it forward, right? So what was your method of actually delivering service and value to these guys? Yeah. So with GoBundance, the founders, when I finally said, okay, you know what? I'm doing this the whole wrong way. I wasted a year of my tuition uh, because I've been sitting here wondering what I'm going to get and playing small and being an imposter syndrome. I went to the founders, the elders, whatever you want to call them for GoBundance. And I said, guys, what is the number one initiative you're working on within GoBundance right now? And they said, oh, actually, we're looking to get this emerge and ascend. We don't even know what that is yet. We just love the names, but we want to build like a future millionaires club. GoBundance requires you're at a million. We want to build a future millionaires club. Um, so that's our number one initiative. So started talking to them about it. And at a certain point, they're like, dude, you want to partner and take this on? Like, we've tried to get it off the ground, but nobody has the bandwidth or desire truly. But if you want to do it, yeah, we'll split the, we'll split the business, you know, and, and it's our brand, your business. And, uh, and we start rolling. So that was, that was one. But I love, I love what you said. I, I give people this advice all the time with networking, especially when they're newer to it in the real estate space, going to a networking event. And they meet that rainmaker. They meet that guy with 200 units in your local market. And the person just is, you know, sitting and talking with you and you're like humbled to be even in their audience and they're explaining things to you and you got so much out of it. And naturally you want to say, hey, how can I help you? It's a terrible question because you're putting the onus on that person to figure out what your skills are, how they match with my needs. And then they got to come up with something like, I don't know, man, I need a massage. You want to give me a massage? Like what, what, what do you mean? How can you help me? Versus if you're really actively listening. And let's say you've got digital marketing skills and you hear this guy talking about his business and his plans next are to market out and get, get, you know, he's looking, he's got, he's well capitalized. He just refied, he's got all this money, but he needs to market for properties. Maybe your digital marketing skills would be valuable to this person. So you say, Hey, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I'm really humbled and honored that we had this discussion. You mentioned you're trying to grow your business. Uh, marketing, I'm sure is a big piece of that. I'm a digital marketer. Like I'm happy to full stack, put together a digital marketing plan and implement it for you. And honestly, uh, whatever, I'll just, if you just let me be a fly on the wall, you don't have to do anything. I'll just be in the room listening, just, you know, kind of getting your scraps, something like that. Now the guy can say, okay, I understand what you, what you offer. You're matching a need of mine and you're willing to deliver that. That's huge. And if you can find it, maybe that's not the right example for this next thing, but if you can find a way to do that without even asking even better, even better without, however, any expectation no expectation of a return. When you do it that way, great things come to you. They just do. How long and, and how much should someone be prepared to give? I mean, because 
usually people are like, yeah, I can give without asking, no problem. But I mean, that's if I'm giving an hour of my time, right? Or one day, right? Like when someone goes into this, should they be prepared to give a week, a month, a year? Like what's kind of the framework around this? This is a good question. I think it, I think it really depends. So I would say the easy answer is forever, but who you're doing with that shifts as you grow. So initially you're looking up, right? You're getting with somebody that's doing something above and beyond where you are and you want to serve and, and, and do that. You just want to do that. Anybody that's, that's in your sphere that, that you can add value to just add value that that's just, it never doesn't return to you. Maybe it's not that individual, but being in a, it's like, you have to be that person in order to derive value. So you might take three, you might take 10 shots and three return and that's okay. It's like, you know, hall of famers bat 300, right? So you might take 10 shots and three return, but if you're trying to find the person that it's right to add value to, that's a way longer process and it's too tactical. So you just got to kind of like, I'm just going to add value, whatever. If somebody's abusing you and you can, you know, you got to, you got to channel your, your inner being here a little bit. Like, you know, when you're being taken advantage of versus you're like, Hey, no, I just want to give and help and, and whatever. But I think you have to do it forever. But as time goes on, man, like it's funny, there's, there's. There's sort of like a flip, and I'm dealing with this now as, as a brand, if you will. I call it, it's like, a, it's called, look at like a triangle almost, right? And at the top of the triangle, you've got like, like time with people that would be paid. In the middle of that triangle, you've got prospecting. And at the bottom of that triangle, you've got philanthropy. So in other words, if you can picture a triangle, the bottom part is philanthropy. So if you look at this in terms of the time that you're spending, philanthropy at the beginning, when you're starting out, you're in a job that you hate, or you're 22 and you want to get into real estate, whatever, a lot of your time is going to be 80, 90% is going to be spent in philanthropy. In other words, you're going to be just giving your time most of the time when you're starting. There's a certain percentage of your time above that. Maybe it's five to 10% or 10 to 20% that is going to be um, uh, prospecting. This could be where, oh, you know what? I'm the digital marketer and I can help real estate people. I'm going to give and give because I'm brand new, but there might be a client or two here that has some interest like, hey, I like what you're doing. Maybe we talk about paying you, spend some time in prospecting. And then zero to 5% at the beginning is spent at the top, which is with paid time, people paying you when you spend time there. But as you go along, and this could be whether it's the example I gave, this could be if you're a personal brand and there's people in the beginning that want to reach out, they see you on Instagram, you got 400 followers and they want to reach out and spend time with you. Great. I'll, I'll, yeah, let's, here's, my, here's my link. Let's get on a call. 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. And you fill up your calendar with all this philanthropic time of yours because you're a chapter ahead of a lot of these folks and you got to give to them. But over time, and it's not because you're too good or anything, but your, your time is going to become paid and you owe it to those that are paid to spend more time with them. So the triangle flips. 80% of your time is going to be spent with paid people, coaching clients, mastermind uh, uh, people that joined your community, your digital marketing clients or whatever. A certain percentage, 10, 20% of your time is going to be spent, or maybe it's 70%, 20% of time is spent on your prospecting. And then 10% is your tithing. That's your philanthropy time. You pick and choose that. But everyone's going to be wanting your time for nothing. I just had this happen on Instagram recently. Everyone's going to be wanting your time for nothing. And you got to say no. And I think there's two ways of doing it. Simply say no. Or, or, uh, sorry, something just clicked on my computer. Simply say no, or you put some money in front of the time that they want and they'll say no for you <laughs> almost a hundred percent. If you say to somebody, yeah, Hey, glad to get on a call. It's $200. When you're at that level, then they'll say no. Most of them, those that do say yes all day, you're investing in you. I do that. All these people I work with do that. You just moved into paid time. You moved into my 70%. So I think that's the, that's how you kind of like move through the process of giving time high in philanthropy at the beginning, 
some promotion, low and paid, and then that flips as your brand grows, the value of your time grows, all of that. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. So I want to dive into a question. So let's say you have a really ultra successful person that you really want to be in touch with, that you want to be in their world. And let's say their time costs $100,000 and you have the ability to pay. It's not going to be comfortable, but you have the ability to pay it. Would you advise somebody to choose a longer philanthropic route to get to that person or to spend the hundred grand? Like, what do you feel like likely and what would be the thought parameters around when do you pay to get in someone's world? And when do you, you know, uh, you always pay if you have it, you always pay, you go philanthropic when you can't, if you can create a hundred thousand dollars in value for somebody, then do that. But it's going to be the longer game because, I mean, that's a, I mean, that example, that's a, that's a lot of value you got to provide to somebody, right? So when you, can go, when you can go the paid route, if you have the ability to go the paid route, and I don't mean it's like, oh, no biggie, 100 grand, but like, okay, I could spend this money in a few different ways. This is going to stretch me. I call it a reasonable act of abundance. So I got, I got that from somebody else. So I call it that, but I got that from somebody else. Um, a reasonable act of abundance in, in as much as you saying, okay, I'm taking a bet on future me here. And this money holds me accountable. Like we spend 10, 12 grand on GoBundance every year. And people say, wow, that's a lot of money. Like it gives me 10,000 reasons every year to make sure that I'm engaging and helping others and understanding the environment that I'm in. Like if I paid a 500 bucks, like I, I don't value that. Some people might, might be 500 is the number, but I say you always pay for it. It ties you to it. It shows how serious you are. And it, it makes that person uh, uh, more accountable or more, more connected to you. Not that you, not that they owe you all their time, but it puts you in their world and that can really serve you. I'll give you, look, I paid a guy 55 grand, uh, to help me build my funnels. Now I can get a funnel builder, any funnel builder to do that, but can I get a guy whose client list is Floyd Mayweather, Mike Tyson, Mr. Beast, uh, Lewis house. Can I get that guy for, you know, 500 bucks to build a funnel? No. This guy I can text. We jump on Zoom calls every so often. We formed a friendship and I can go to him and say, hey man, I I'm looking to do something in LA with Jordan Belfort. Is that possible? Yeah, I'll put in a word. I'll get in touch with him right now. Does that make sense? So I say you always pay for it if that's an option. Yeah, because once you pay for it, the mindset of the person that you're paying for then assumes that you're at that level, right? As opposed to at a philanthropic level. Like 
is it is it the mindset of the person? Is it the fact that because they've been paid, they have a greater attachment to you? Yeah, I, I think I think it's is it the I'm sorry, is it the mindset of the person that you're going for? Like, are you are you asking like, does it matter who you pay in some ways? No, no. So I guess my question is is so when you pay somebody, like, do they view you then more like not necessarily as an equal, but they view you as someone who was capable of paying versus someone who couldn't, but just, you know, is hustling, getting started, so to speak. I don't see it that way. Like I look at it this way, like for me, and I'm not at that level, but for, for those that pay to be around me versus those that can't, I don't view them any differently, especially those like I've had people say, Hey, I can't, but I can offer this to you. That's the exchange of value I could provide. And I'm perfectly good with that. I think what I look at is when you pay, when you put money down, which is just the resource that we're all connected to, it just, it makes you serious to me. So therefore I want to be serious with you. There's so many times, especially when I was high in philanthropy time, as we talked about earlier, there's so many times I would get on a call with somebody and really the reason they wanted to talk to me about, wow, you quit your job making three, 400 grand a year is they want to find my advantage so that they could stay, so that they could then say, oh, I don't have that advantage. Therefore I can stop trying. That happened so much. It still happens, right? It's like, so people will start with that. So, um, does your wife work? No. And they're like, damn, you can hear it. Like, shit, my wife doesn't work. If his wife worked, I could stop right now. Oh, well, that's how I see. You had your wife's income yeah. to really supplement what you did, right? So then they got to go a layer deeper. Do your kids have diabetes? No. Oh, yeah, my kids have these health <laughs> issues. So, you know, uh, that, that, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's always something. Do you live in this state? Yeah. Oh, I live in California. It's way more expensive and taxes are way higher. So it's just, it's so much harder. Like rolling my eyes whenever I get on these conversations and I, I've started to call people out and they're like, look, man, we're on a call. Did you just want me to get on this call so that you could find out how privileged I am and why you are victimized by my privilege? Is that what this is? Is that, you know? And people are like, no, 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 not at all. But you got to shake people out of that. But that's the difference between a paid conversation. That shit doesn't happen. Or if it does, permission to go deep on this person and really have a deep conversation and the non-paid conversation. The non-paid conversation is more people tire kicking more often than not. Not always, but more often than not. And if you're somebody who's in the space of, hey, I, I have 40 hours in a week. I get paid for my time, just like a job. I'm spending 10 of them with people that aren't paying me. And eight of those 10 are tire kicking me. I don't want to spend any more time with you, even though there's two, there's two in there. It's not worth it to me to spend eight hours finding the two when the other 32 hours are being paid. Yeah, hundred percent. So I want to get into a conversation being a lover of math. I like to understand valuation numerically. So you made a $55,000 spend to have a mentor to make connections. So, right. So you placed a value on the connections that he can make for you. What is the equation? If any, how do you think through how valuable a connection is, right? Cause it's, it's, it's a relationship thing, which is important, but it also has like, you have, you're making some monetary decisions with your money. So how do you decide when, when is too much, too much for for a connection? How do you go through that process? That's a hard question. When is too much, too much? It's so much in the eye of the beholder, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a really good example. Like if you said, Hey, uh, pay 25 grand to go hang out with Robert Kiyosaki or 10 grand, I'd say, no, you know, like I'm in real estate, but real estate isn't like my passion. If you spent, said spend 25 grand to go hang out with Joe Rogan as a podcaster, I'll double that and pay it. No problem. So it really is like, you know, in the eye of the beholder, 
you know, what is that value? Uh, what, you know, what do you perceive that value to be? So that's one. I think the other part for me is I've done it at smaller levels building up and have seen an actual tangible return. I just wrote a newsletter on this. I invested in my first investment in a mastermind or community or course or whatever. And it, at the time it was like, I can't believe I'm spending this money was wheelbarrow profits, Jake and Gino multifamily, 1500 bucks. Today it's 25 grand. I was one of the first like 20, 30 guys to join that thing. And I remember like 1500 bucks, like what am I getting? I must've been one of those pain in the ass, like, dude, it's only 1500 bucks. And I'm like, it's 1500 bucks. Are you crazy? Like I got, I got to know that I'm getting so much for this. And from that relationship, I, I made over $200,000 from that mastermind partner found there did deals with that partner exited $200,000 to me on our last deal. So that's a minimum. There's more, but I can't even think of it. Then I stepped up to go abundance, seven grand to 10 grand. I joined at seven and now it's 10 grand. And in go abundance and go abundance, I've made over a million dollars in equity and income directly connected. And this isn't like I had 50 grand. I invested in a guy in go abundance who also advertises publicly. And I'm counting that as, oh, I got a good return on it. I'm not counting that. I'm talking equity derived out of no money out of my own pocket and income derived out of relationships within go abundance over a million dollars in the last three or four years, right? for 10 grand a year, call it 20 with trips. So for 80 grand, four years, I'm over a million dollars, okay? So now I paid this guy 55 grand. You know my return is on him, on the $55,000? Tell me. Zero, not a dime. Be with him four or five months and I don't care because it's a long game. My, my return after one year ago, abundance, zero. My return after two years, probably made my money back on what abundance was. Three and four years in, that's where I started to make equity and income over seven figures total. It's a long game. So for me, the perceived value was, or not even the perceived value, the, the, the decision tree for me was one, I dipped my toe in and I've seen when I invest my money, the time I, I, the time I commit as a result and the return that I get from that time commitment, it's tangible. I, I've just, I've just given you the numbers on it. And so when I do decide that I'm going to invest with somebody, like he made the number, I don't know why it's 55 versus 50 or 60. I, I don't know why he made the number, but I'm not haggling with him. I want in his world, 55 is the price and I can pay it. I'm paying it. If he said 25, I would have paid it. If he said 60, I would have paid it. Much over 60, I probably would have struggled with it. You know, like 55 was definitely like, okay, that's top end of the range, but it's in the range. And this guy is a podcaster. He's well-connected. He was referred to me by a guy that does eight figures a year in my space, Kiala Kanai, referred this guy to me on a podcast, which I love about podcasting. So it's like, all right, I got social proof with a guy that I respect and have become friends with because he's in the space. And I mean, I can't afford Kiala, but this guy is willing to spend time with me. And by the way, this was like his consultant service. His full stack is 250. He's like, but I could do 55 as a consultant. Exactly. So I paid the 55 to be a consultant, to consult with him. And we do, we get on calls. He walks through funnels with me. He talks me through different podcast uh, ideas. He's connected me to different guests. You mentioned Evan Carmichael. I met Evan Carmichael in an email connection from this guy. So what did I make off of that? I could probably start to calculate it because Evan Carmichael, I paid 10 grand to come speak in Austin, 15 with travel, right? And no one really expected, knew what to expect from him. And he blew the room away. I just opened our Chicago event and it's selling like that. So maybe this guy that connected me to Evan Carmichael and I had to pay another 15 grand out of my business to bring this guy in 70 all in. But if I make 50 grand on this next event, I'm starting to get a return there and I can route it to, if I go back and look at the survey for my first event, oh my God, Evan Carmichael was above and beyond. So now when I say, Hey everyone, another event's coming, it's going to be great. We know we've seen it. 
We saw you bring in Evan Carmichael. We barely even knew who the guy was, but holy crap, we believe in you, Jamie. Thanks to the connection I got to Evan Carmichael that I wouldn't have gotten if not for this connection with, uh, with Mark. And Evan's fee is 25 grand, typically. So maybe I wow. say 15 grand right there with that connection. <laughs> so to, to recap this a little bit. So basically, if you don't have money, you use the philanthropic principle to get into higher people's worlds. If you do have the money, you pay because that's the right move. Pay for access like a GoBundance, right? Where you have access to all these amazing people. You start the relationship with how do I provide value? If, I mean, the best ideal way to do that is essentially to go straight and find out from like just observing them as opposed to asking them. But if you must ask, it sounds like the best question is what's your biggest initiative, right? So you can mm. see where their vision is then from there. And then you provide value in that world. And the next thing you know, you're obviously interviewing some of the most amazing people in the world. I want to dive a little bit into like, like how has your perspective changed? Like, is it that you just think so much bigger? Is it that you're taking more risks? What, what are some of the specific mindset changes that have happened in the last say year of meeting these people? I want to go back to one thing uh, that you said a second ago. One thing that I think people might hear in that is like, oh, the digital marketing example. Well, I ask this person what their big initiative is, and then they tell me, and there's no skill or anything that I have that I can insert myself in that. So now what? I don't have, I barely have any skills. I talk, you can tell. Like I like to talk, right? That's my skill. That's my core competency. But I'm a really, really good connector. And I had no idea how much value connecting had when I had a W-2 but I pretty much made a living connecting people since my W2. So it doesn't have to be that you've got this specific thing that you can personally deliver, but you can deliver a connection. You can say, hey, I know somebody that's doing this. Or if you don't, you can go out and, and, uh, and find that person. What's it called when you're wholesaling? You can bird dog. You can bird dog for the ideal person to serve this, this individual that you're looking to serve. And you make that connection, no questions asked. That's, work for, that's how I got into quantum capital, which is where a lot of equity came from. That's how I got into a Reds game. It wasn't, it wasn't because I had a specific, oh, uh, you need this? I can do that. It's like, you need to meet this person, this person, this person. You good with the text connect? Great. I'll take care of it. And then a month later, like, man, thank you so much. So mindset, sh mindset shift in the last year or so. Um, it's interesting. Thinking bigger for sure. I'm trying to think of, I went through this experience this past weekend, a solo weekend. I do this every quarter. And the solo weekend for me is uh, a way to kind of like get in solitude, get away from people, go to a hotel, just no family, no kids, no nothing, and get like really deep and introspective. And from that solo weekend, it's still buzzing in my brain. So when I'm trying to think back on the whole year, like I'm kind of stuck on how much there was to unpack from one single weekend. And from that weekend, I'll, I'll share this because I think it's, you know, it's something that I've been doing, but it, it gave me the epiphany. I had a purpose statement to inspire and motivate others to live their best life. That's always been my purpose since I left my job. I want to inspire and motivate others to live their best life. Sounds great. And it is great. And it is what I want to do. But when I went into this weekend, I had this, this deep introspective thought, meditated, kind of journaled it out and everything. And this idea kept coming up that was that my purpose is to be seen, to be seen. And then I went through this mental tennis match on, well, wait a minute, that's an egocentric thing to be seen. And that feels bad. On the other side of that, it was like, yeah, but it serves other people and that feels good. So then it was like, okay, but so both are okay, right? We all have egos. If my ego is satiated and by satiating my ego, I'm, not, I'm actually helping people. Then the idea of being seen is actually more purposeful 
and, and achieves the mission of inspiring and motivating others to live their best life. As I'm talking through this, the ego thing is probably the big year takeaway. So I'll get to that if it's okay, but let me just finish this thought. So for me, the big epiphany I had from this past weekend was um, I've, I've recruited great guests for the podcast. I've been on good podcasts. I've been on a couple of stages. And every time I do that, I get feedback that, wow, you've done something or said something that has helped me, not from the whole audience of five, 600 people, like, you know, two, five, 10, 20 people. It doesn't matter. Somebody is getting value. There's people in Emerge, this community that I run, that, that I get messages all the time. Hey, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I wanted to let you know this has happened in my life directly correlated to what you put together, or you made this connection for me and this is what's happened from it. I just bought a business. So I see it. When I'm seeing good things happen, and again, sounds egocentric even now to say it. So that was a big takeaway for me is like, you know what? The highest and best use of me is yes, do the podcast, but get the biggest guests where you can get the most reach and make the most impact. Yes, I got to get on podcasts, but get on the biggest podcasts where I can get the most reach and make the most impact. You know, uh, get on the biggest stages I possibly can. Not that I have to, I can bypass the small stages to get practice, but get on the biggest stages that I possibly can. You know, go as big as possible. If I'm going to be doing this, if I'm going to make this effort, go big. So yeah, thinking bigger for sure. But the other part of this for me is in the last year or so, I've done a lot of work on repairing my relationship with my ego. This started with a psilocybin retreat, not to get way into the psychedelic stuff, but started with a psilocybin retreat, which I had never done before. And I dove into a, a, a very, 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 very uh, structured psilocybin um, event. There was a pre-session pre with a psychologist. I sat down and it was administered to me. And there was a post-session with a psychologist, very intentional. And that first session was very, very dark because what I wanted, my intention was, what's preventing me from being the best version of myself? It felt very heavy and dark, whatever energy was coming at me in this, in this reflective state. And, and in talking to the psychologist, my ego had been suppressed, or at least I had been trying to suppress it for so long because we all hear ego is the enemy. Ego is bad. Ego is not good for you. And I didn't want ego to show up because in my mind, ego is not a good thing. And so imagine this whole part of you that's there being told, I don't want you anymore. That part of me came flashing up at me like, hey, MFR. I'm here. And remember when you were afraid to go on stage and do comedy? What do you think pushed you through? That was me. Remember when you were afraid to go approach your now wife? What do you think made you get there? That was me. So my ego was really aggressive in reclaiming their position in my life because I had tried to stomp it out. And I had done a lot of work through constellation healing and some other artsy fartsy woo woo shit that people might be like, whoa, this guy just went left field on me. He just went Aaron Rodgers on me. But I've gone through a lot of work in confronting my ego, becoming friendly with my ego, embracing my ego, culminating with a second psilocybin retreat that was very, very much like a, like a, a full round table of all parts of me. My sense of humor, my ego, my authenticity, my, my physical voice, all of them were just sort of commiserating on the best version of what I can be going forward. And it gave me the sense of like, hey, all parts of me are okay. And that's been a major shift. Now getting furthered even more by going on the solo weekend retreat and tapping back into that, that round table of, of the parts of me and, and really getting further ahead in my mind, at least with where I'm, where I need to go next. So repairing my relationship with my ego has been a huge, huge, huge push in the last 12 months. I want to run something by you because it seems like the thoughts you're going through might have some similarity to a conversation on a podcast about a year ago. And so the statement was made that your ego is not your amigo. And mm. so we started to dive into the correlation between ego and humility. Um, because a lot of times for people, those are connected, right? Like I want to diminish myself so that, you know, I'm not, 
you know, being boastful or whatever. And one of the things that came out of that was essentially this idea that confidence like is a valuable thing, period. Right. And we, we've kind of determined that like the lack of humility isn't how much display of confidence you have, but it's really actually tied to the ability, like, are you willing to learn, right? Like ego becomes bad or, or confidence becomes bad when it, when it prevents you from wanting to learn more or recognizing that there's a greater thing that that's out there. Like, would you agree with that type of thing? Like, like as long as your ego is not creating you into this like selfish, uh, self-serving thing where you're not actually providing value to the world and you're not actually learning anymore. Uh, obviously that's bad, but like, besides that, like everything else, right? Ego is doing really amazing things for you and the people around you. I completely agree with that. And I think that's the, that's the downfall of the concept. The book title is really great. Ego is the enemy is saying that it's a bad thing and pushing it away. And I'll concede this when, when, you know, when you offend somebody or you're aggressive with somebody or you do something that's hurtful in any way, it's 100% ego. Ego is always responsible for that. So anytime that you are in a space of being hurtful to others, you ruined a relationship, whatever, it's all ego. Even if, if you and your spouse divorced, the reason why you divorced, it's all ego. Ego is this protection mechanism we built as kids to protect us from the insecurities that we have or that we feel we have. So yes, ego is always the culprit when something goes bad or when something is wrong uh, in your life from a relational standpoint. But at the same time, I remember this, I had a, in a coaching session, it was a great, great point. And I think it furthers what you said. If I were to take a big ass goal and throw it on the wall over there and then tell my ego or me to go attack it, who do you think is going to get it first? <laughs> right? My ego is going to get it right. first. And when you look at your yeah. ego as that, sure. as that, yeah, as, the, as like your accountability partner, when you partner with your ego, it is the healthiest of things. It kills me. The stoicism thing I like, I like the concepts of, but I think if you read what Stoics are talking about or those that subscribe to Stoicism are talking about, they're talking about partnering with the ego. They, they, their words literally seem to say the ego needs to die, but more what it's saying is the ego needs to remain in check in a balanced way so that you can function at your maximum potential in society. But too many read it literally as like, I have a guy, I know that he's like, I'm egoless. I'm like, no, no, you're not egoless. That is the, that is the most egotistical statement that you could possibly make <laughs> that you're egoless. It's ridiculous. So I, I hope I'm answering your question, but I, I think what you were asking, what I'm trying to say is, Ego is, is your amigo, but like any, like any aggressive friend that you have or any friend with a big, bold personality, sometimes you gotta, you gotta rein them in. You know, you gotta give your, this, you gotta give your, your friend or your ego some guardrails to operate within. And you gotta make those wide enough for them to be creative and do some stuff and just understand that sometimes they're going to jump that guardrail. And when they do bad stuff happens, but I would rather toe the line close to crossing over into egocentric and allow for my life to track with the benefits of my ego driving some of this, then try to destroy my ego and live in this constant state of humility and this self-deprecating nature. I would way rather be on the edge of my ego and fuck up every so often than go the other way. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it kind of reminds me of like friendships. Like you have some friendships where you're, you're exactly the same and some friendships where you have some slight differences, right? And the friendships where you're the same, like, like I have this guy, like we would eat the most unhealthy food together every single time we got together because that was where we connected. Right. And if I hung yeah. out with that guy every day, I'd be like 400 pounds. Um, <laughs> and so like, um, it also kind of reminds me like what you're saying reminds me of the concept of meekness, right? Like strength under control. It's almost mm -hmm. like the strength in this case might be the ego, right? Like that's the, the thing that you're letting kind of become full 
but you're putting you're putting some restraints on it so that it's like hey like we're going to place other people ahead of our own ambitions we're going to do all these things to make sure that it's not a harmful ego but other than that you know have at it this is this might sound a little crazy to people but psilocybin helped me with this because like i said i literally could see not see but feel like these different entities sitting around a proverbial round table my ego being one of them and so now when I meditate, before when I meditate, I was like, all right, go someplace really cool and zen, but I didn't know where I was going, right? Now I've seen the place within me that I can go. So when I meditate, and in this solo weekend, I did like a, nearly an hour meditation, I go back in and I, I, I'm, there they all are. It's like a reunion, like, hey, it's me. I'm the funny part of you. Hey, it's me. I'm the ego part of you. And I do go through this because there's conscious thought and language that for me to interpret these feelings and energies, I ask for that. I physically say in silence, can you please interpret that with pictures or pictures or words? And it'll come to me, whatever that might be. But often when something is coming up and I'm feeling a certain way, I'll literally physically say in my mind, ego, are you okay with this? How do you feel about this ego? I literally say those words and I feel that energy come over. Like, is it an angry energy? Like, this is stupid. I hate it. And you're squashing me again. Or is it like, I know I can get down with that. I'm good with that. I'm there. I'm in. You know what I mean? So again, some people are gonna be like, okay, turn this guy off. I don't know what the hell he's talking about, tripping on mushrooms and talking to parts of him inside. But I hope you get the point, right? Like this is how I do it. Not how everybody has to do it, but I look at my ego as a component of me. Like at the end of these hard meetings that I have, I wanna have that thing where, you know, we break, it's five o'clock. We had our, we had our, you know, we rumbled it up a little bit. We roughed each other up. We really, but it was a productive meeting and now we're all going to have a beer. That's the feeling I want to have with all parts of me at the end of a session like that or daily as I, as I meditate and try to meditate rather than this, this feeling of like, I don't know if I should, uh, should I, that feels egocentric. I should kill the ego. So I, I try to go in and really, really rally all of me, all parts of me. Like you said, the friends around you that I'm trying to bring together so that we're all symbiotic and where we're trying to go and align. So that's the work and it will continue to be the work for me for forever as, as it will with anybody. But that work has led me to much, much larger, I guess, conclusions for the future of my life. In these sessions, when you show up at the round table of characters, was there anybody that you didn't know? No, no, they're all there. It's, it's again, it's not faces. I, I, I it's hard to explain. It's like, it's like energies. And again, I, I'm in this when you're, when any, you're doing again, anybody, were there any energies that we're familiar with. No. Now, the only one that I was unfamiliar, not unfamiliar, but I didn't understand or appreciate was the energy of my ego, the angry energy of my ego that first time I went in, because I had been just beating this guy or beating this part of me down for so long. But no, there wasn't anything, not, nothing that was foreign to me. It was, it was very, when I, again, under, under, under mushrooms, under psilocybin, especially where it's like, whoa, I'm floating above this whole thing. It's very familiar. It's very calming. It's very like, wow, there I am. This meat sack that I'm in is just what's outwardly the appearance of me, but there's me. I see all of me. Hmm. So maybe not enough time has elapsed, but as you let your ego become a bigger part of who you are, has that impacted your confidence in life and maybe your ability to do certain things? It's a great question. And bringing it back full circle to the fear piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I, I want to be clear in saying like, I, I'm not necessarily letting my ego grow. That sounds like that. Ah, just get bigger and bigger ego take over baby, but it's allowing for it. It's giving it space where, you know, like before I was like, put it in the closet and now it's like, no, 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 let it have its own bedroom just like everybody else. Right. So it's just an equal part of me, if you will. 
But yes, yes. When, when I'm in a place of should I, shouldn't I, I'm afraid to, but I'm going to push through. Ego does it, man. If I get on stage with Jesse Itzler or Tom Bilyeu in front of a few hundred people, right? With, I mean, these are big brain, fast talking guys. And I've got my questions teed up and I'm looking like, oh wait, you have a clock. I have to, I have to get this many Q and A in and there's all these things happening. I'm afraid to death that I'm going to fuck this up and look stupid in front of a bunch of people. But there's ego. There's ego holding me up and saying, no, no, we got this. We got this. I'm with you. I'm not against you. I'm with you. You're not fighting me to do it. You're actually leveraging me to do it. And I appreciate that. So yeah, I, I think, I think, um, I think all of what I've feared in the past always had an element of ego pushing me through and I'm just able to sort of tap into it more intentionally, more tactically than I've ever been able to before in the last 12 months or so. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing about your life and your business. There's so many nuggets that could be taken away. And obviously you've said it like, obviously guys, we're not encouraging you to go have psilocybin or, or have these retreats, but what we're encouraging you to do is to think about who are you and what are the parts of you that are serving you super well? What are the parts of you that maybe aren't serving you very well? Take some stock in that. There's so many things that Jamie talked about today from the writing down of, of your goals to like, you know, connecting to high value people, how you provide value in relationships to how you even deal with yourself in a way that can give you more confidence and have you perform better. So write down something you learned from today, share it with somebody who knows they can hold you accountable. This freedom is required one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day, before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 